Welcome to All About Art. My name is Alexandra, and I'm an art historian, curator, and writer. Within this podcast, topics relating to art history, cultural policy, the art sector, as well as a large range of other art-related topics will be covered. Conducting critical discussions, having entertaining exchanges, or just enjoying some relaxing chats? All About Art is where you'll find it all. Join me in exploring and developing cultural discourse. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of All About Art. This episode is in collaboration with Art Power Contemporary, a collaborative art project initiative that places focus on female identifying and non-binary creatives in the arts. The CEO, Anna Morass, founded Art Power with the aim of raising awareness about gender stereotypes and gender inequality while inspiring change through creativity and collaborations. In this episode, I chat to American artist April Martin about her work, but also her life experiences, her family, consumerism, living in New York as an artist during COVID, and so much more. April uses art as a channel for connection and critical thought. She analyzes how we form cultural identity through social pressures, such as what we purchase, consume, and digest, whether they be material goods or ideas. Through the creation of art experiences and collectible works of art, April invites audiences to celebrate the spirit of sacred individuality that makes us human and ties us together. Thank you to both April and Anna for this collaboration. And now, on to the interview. So April, thank you so much for being here with me today, uh, albeit via Zoom, so remotely, but I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm just going to dive right in into the first question, and that is, uh, tell me a bit about your artistic practice. What are the topics that you cover in your work? I understand that it's family, identity, and heritage, and that those are really big topics that you explore. For sure. Yeah. Um, good morning or <laughs> afternoon for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh, For me, it starts in the practice with this like insatiable curiosity, like I'm asking myself the question, what don't I know? As a citizen of the world, what is it that I've consumed that needs to be challenged as truthful or the things that I believe I must accept? So I'm thinking about institutional disruption to the human soul. I'm thinking about life cycles and lifespans, ephemerality. And I'm thinking about what we can sense but that we might not be able to see or touch. And so these are like these global, global themes in the work. And that goes back to obviously identity and heritage, because like what, what makes us who we are? Like, is it, is it what we're told? This is who you are, right? This is how we're going to construct you in society. And so that makes identity. This is where you're from. This is the color of your skin. <laughs> this is your biology. So yeah, those global sort of questions that I have are really getting at the core of the things that you mentioned. Absolutely. And how all of these different circumstances impact a person and can, can lead to defining a person, That's but right. then how we question that and how we can redefine as well. So tell me about how the church is a prominent topic in your art. Sure. My, my mind was co-opted at a very, very early age, actually from birth, by religious fundamentalists. 
So my life was absorbed by the church and the idea of autonomy or individual critical thinking was frowned upon. You were in groupthink, right? And it took me a long time, well into adulthood to free my mind. Uh, I allowed myself to think deeply about just about things in general and, and about questions that I had. And I started to look at all the ideas that I had inherited, but that, that didn't really resonate with me as true. So I, I naturally started creating work. And in reality, I was creating a life for myself, uh, imagining a life beyond mind hacking and realizing that I had been quite stunted psychologically and spiritually, developmentally speaking. So I allowed myself to think deeply about religiosity, right? And so these themes of grand narrative ideologies, myths, fairy tales, this all started showing up in the work. And I was taking these existing ideas and the symbolism within them and then layering new meaning upon them. So I end up creating a, a new language for myself. Like I, I didn't just like jump out into the abyss and start making work, right? I'm like using what I knew and what I was questioning. And that sort of created a foundation. I'm going a little bit off script briefly sure. here just to, it's more of a comment than it is a question, but obviously there is a question because it's about how you felt. But I feel like when you grow up being told to do these things or, or being told how to think. And, and as you said, you know, group think and not really having the opportunity for encouragement of critical thinking. I feel like breaking out of that and beginning to think critically about your surroundings and about what you know is actually a really scary thing. And Absolutely. I think you have to be really brave. And, and, and I mean, I, I know that I would have to be, and it's, it's a, it's a constant kind of confrontation, isn't it? That you have to kind of go through. Absolutely. That, yeah. I felt like I was fighting for my life and, and I was in a state of, of this like internal terror, but it felt external. Like I was yeah. being terrorized by the group, you know? Like, yeah. How dare you leave? How dare you have a question? How dare you have, you know, a thought outside of what we've told you to think. And that, you know, thinking about like the developmental stages of a, a child growing up in the world, yeah, that was not something easily undone for sure. And so whether it's in a religious fundamentalist group or it's, you know, other societal forces doing that, you just, you just can imagine it's brave for anyone to get up in the morning and decide for themselves what it is they believe and what they think and how they want to contribute to society. Yeah. So how does, I mean, you've, you've delved into this a little bit, but how does your personal life, but also, for example, your, your family, your partner, your children influence your artistic practice? That's a good question. I, I've realized recently that I had to develop workarounds for the longest time. I was the primary domestic caregiver though I was working part-time jobs and finally going to school as an adult, I really had to work smarter, not harder, so to speak. Um, I would just like let the questions bubble up, let the concept be the primary thing, and then look for a way of expressing it within the confines that I had at the time, whether it be budget or space or time. And I really think this led me into working into a variety of media and being flexible as an artist. Like I didn't just wake up one day and say, I'm a painter or I'm a sculptor. Like that wasn't possible for me. And at the end of the day, working in this way with three children around, 
uh, and a partner who traveled 80% of the time, I, I really ended up being inspired by my children. They were these, you know, young humans that I could actually have an impact on. And so I was thinking all the time about it, what I was saying or what I was doing. And I think that helped me be a better artist because in a way, you know, you can mold a child, right? You can sort of create for them an identity. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to, to help them to learn to question very young. So they're still an inspiration for me. I wanted them to see their parent pursuing meaningful work, really going for it. And now they're off on their own and we inspire each other. My partner also now through a lot of struggle together working through this life, we, he, he believes that art is the most important thing that I can be doing right now. And that's, that's big. So that helps me keep going on, on the very difficult days. I think having that support from your surroundings is really important, especially because I think that art can sometimes be such a stigmatized sector to a certain extent, because it's where we live in a capitalist society. And then it's all about, well, can you make money from it? And, and people who go into art, it's, it's never about that. Well, okay. I should never say never. I don't want to (laughs) overgeneralize the entire sector, but it's never about or rarely about making any money. It's about, it's about soul and purpose and expression and humanity and culture and feeling. And, um, so having that support, I think is really important. I think that I can relate to that in the sense of, you know, having a mother who I remember when I decided what I wanted to do and I was just ending high school and I knew that I was going to take a gap year and, uh, I was Googling and I don't know what I Googled. I think I Googled museum director met or something like that. I can't remember. And I ran into her room and I was like, I want to study art history. And she was like, all right, well then let's sit down and let's look at universities that do that. And then we found UCL and it's, and yeah, she just, she helped me apply to UCL and, and she, she never once said, well, that's not going to make you money. And I think that that was something that was really important to have is that type of person in my life to, to be encouraging of what I do and having that be my mom that, that, you know, made me even like luckier as, as an only child and having her, you know, um, because some parents think it's really great how you described it with your children, how you don't want to force them into a mold. You want to guide them, but you don't want to, you don't want to put them in anything like not in a box. And I think that that's really beautiful and, and a, a wonderful thing. Um, I'm so glad you shared that with me because it's <laughs> for sure, like money shouldn't be the primary thing, right? We, we obviously need to live. And, and I went to school actually with many peers quite younger than myself who were, were having to do like dual majors or, you know, really fight for the art because the parents needed to know that they were going to be okay financially. And I felt for them and I understood. <laughs> I, I tell my students, you know, keep a day job. It's, it's a good thing to know that you can take care of yourself, but don't let the art be affected by, by economic concerns. Don't let that bleed into the art. And the art world will, will test you <laughs> oh, on, yeah, that, will. on that point. <laughs> for sure. oh, yeah, yeah. My, son, my, my son called me from his his program, he was in architecture at the time, foundations. 
And he said, I, I'm going into fashion. Okay. Just don't tell anybody for a while. <laughs> Just try it on. <laughs> Make sure <laughs> that's what you want because you're going to hear a lot of voices saying no, 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 no. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so speaking of like, cause we've kind of mentioned being, for example, you as um, the primary caregiver, like in your partnership, as well as not putting people into boxes, especially, you know, raising children that way. So what is your view on gender and sexuality issues and how do you explore this in your work? Because I know that when we spoke the last time, you recommended a great text to me on queer theory in international relations, which was a really, really interesting read because it bleeds into all parts of society. And um, I know we were also talking about the method of countering the patriarchy through language and how important that can be. So how are these themes reflected, if at all? I mean, it, it goes without saying, right? The patriarchy is, is, is this overarching theme that we're butting up against in, in many societies today. And so I, there, I don't think a lot needs to be said about the patriarchy. We'll, we'll just assume that we all know. And for me, the church had a lot to say about gender and sex, didn't they, right? So of course this comes up in the work. I have been thinking back, I've always been drawn to androgynous figures as my role models, though I was expected to be hyper-feminine in, in the family and, and in the church. The church demonized anything outside of heteronormativity. And of course I was expected to be a godly woman. That's what I was being trained for. So the church's puritanical thinking it comes from and it centers on myths of purity and defines a godly person as someone who only has pure thoughts towards God. And it gets really, it gets really crazy when you dig down into the do doctrine, like there's like language around marriage to God, right? And, and the, the bride and the virgin. And I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Well, what does this all even mean, right? To have pure thoughts. So I sent you that article on queer theory because I think that queer thinking is still so hard for people to wrap their brains around. The word queer is just too much for the mainstream. And I experienced this in grad school in an art program, right? It's certainly not talked about unless you're openly expressing yourself as LGBTQIA. Yet for me, like queering was like the most powerful tool I discovered in my program. Um, I discovered it, I guess, more on the side of... Um, <laughs> of all things, medieval art history, a medieval art history class oh, <laughs> where we talked about queering Christ and then in um, film studies. Yeah. Cinema studies. Mm. So this, this is a tool that I use and it looks beyond the binary set of right or wrong, good or bad, this or that. And by adopting a queer lens for viewing worlds we're we're opened up, it's like a channel for discovery. We're able to come to a space of possibility and humankind needs that so desperately right now. All sentient beings, all living things on this earth right now are relying on humans to see beyond the binary that breeds social warfare. The social imaginary is given to us, we inherit it, and then we're expected to fall in line. And if we don't fall in line, we're expected to fight, right? Another binary. But what if we think our way out of out of the mess that we've created for ourselves as humans, right? Think our way out of climate change. Think our way out of hate. Make love, not war. So I think when we reduce people to their gender or sexuality, 
what we're doing is we're limiting potential. And that's just how I think about, you know, queering in the work and gender and sexuality in general with regard to myself and the work. Absolutely. Something that really rings true to what you said and also relates back to that text. Um, I'm just going to read because I, I took out my like one of my favorite lines from that text. And it was actually in the conclusion. It starts with, you know, queer theory has also proven to be theoretically inclusive in ways that LGBT and feminist scholarship sometimes has not, which Mm -hmm. I think we can all agree on. And a question that remains is whether queer theorists can recognize and perhaps transcend their own racial, class, and Western-centric orientations. Mm -hmm. Such broadening would also make it easier to find common cause with other affected minorities, not least to move from a purely critical or deconstructive mode to a more transformative and productive one. And I think that's that line just really resonated because of this, you know, the way that sometimes with the binaries, it's right and wrong and all of that. And going into this, you know, if you're critical about something, then I think that there are so many ways to go about speaking about it. But often it does turn into a more deconstructive way because it demonizes the other side. That's right. Whereas it's really important to think about other ways to go about it to, as the text says, to transform and, and to be pro- productive and constructive in the conversation. And because society is, you know, so, I mean, I used to, I, I grew up, what, what was it that I said when I was younger? I was like, oh, sexuality is just like a, a wibbly wobbly love, whoever you want kind of thing. And, right. and that's kind of what society sometimes can be. It's kind of this wibbly wobbly. Well, everyone's really different mm-hmm. and everyone has different experiences. We can look at it critically, but we need to be careful not to, to be destructive with what we do and what we say. Absolutely. And that is a theme that carried me through grad school, because here I was able to like really start questioning and digging deep on things that I, you know, inherited again, things that I, I was fight, I was in fight mode. (laughs) And then one day somebody turned to me and was like, well, you know, what else behaves like religion? And so they kind of got me out of my own way for a minute. And like, instead of being so critical about the religion that you grow up in, like what else in society behaves like religion or, or produces similar outcomes. And that got me to like sort of expand and open up and not be like so mad. (laughs) And I mean, there's sometimes, you know, reason to be mad and, and to go out in the street, you know, with our banners and waving our flags, but I'm, I'm much more comfortable in a space of possibility and transformation and constructing rather than tearing down. And that's just, it's comfortable for, for me. And that's how I, I work. I think that also goes hand in hand with, with having empathy as well. For I sure. think that that's something that human beings, I think, have to work really, really hard on sometimes. <laughs> At least some people do. I definitely. Yeah. And I, and I'm, you know, I've been told that's sort of like my, my weakness in that I'm too empathetic, right? Go figure. How is that a weakness? That I, you-, I, you know, that you feel <laughs> all the things all the time and you're, you know, trying to like, make everybody okay. And yeah, that can, that can be disruptive too. Right. So art for me is really a a safe, safe channel. I realized that through art, I could not only help myself, but then there's an audience on the other side. If you're willing to open up and share the art, which we might talk about later, then you're affecting a lot of people with your process. And again, another grad school moment where I had this amazing artist come through where she said to me, like, 
do you really believe in the power of your own work? Because I don't think you do. I was still like fighting, you know, in fight mode. And she's like, calm down, <laughs> grasshopper, calm down. The work is doing it. Just do the work. And to give myself permission to do that, it felt a little bit self-indulgent and wrong. But no, she was right. I I started to tear up a little bit. I saw that. <laughs> I was like, sorry. I, it's fine because I just, I, it, like that's the whole reason why we fight so hard for people to engage with art because it's it's for exactly that reason. And it's just, it's such a beautiful emotional thing. And that's why I was just like, oh, I love this so much because it just, it's really, really important and it's really, really good. I'm glad we but, went there. Yeah. Yeah. But when you, so you talk about, you know, your work and, and themes that have been important in the process of creation. And I am aware that the color pink is a prominent one in your work. Would you mind sure. elaborating on that a little bit? Yes. It, it showed up in my work about 10 years ago. I recently discovered an early work where I used pink. And then in grad school, it became a prominent element in my work. I wasn't really even thinking about it. I brought two tubes of paint with me to grad school and a canvas and not much else. It was, I was encouraged to come and leave my entire practice behind and sort of start fresh. And that was good advice. I chose pink for a reason and I chose yellow for a reason. And I can, we can unpack that another day. But what I discovered in grad school was that I was deeply impacted by an early art experience. And that was Christo and Jean-Claude's Surrounded Islands in Miami in the 80s. But also I'm a child of the 80s, right? Just Google 80s aesthetic. I can just see it in my mind. It's almost like that's what shows up in the work is the aesthetic that I was drawn to. And it was primarily musicians, I think, that I was looking at at the time and how they were dressing and androgyny again and sexuality was on display. And what, what I'm really doing, I think, at the at the core of the work is I'm working off a primary color scheme, which can be associated with so many things. Candy, childhood, church stained glass windows, those, those keep showing up for me. But when pink wants to dominate, I let it. So I've described my own aesthetic at times as being like pretty, sweet, bright, colorful, reflective, a candy-coated aesthetic covering deep existential concern. Some might even say it's a sensual, feminized allure with this like disturbing undercurrent. I think I can directly quote that from somebody. Well, why is this? You know, like pink needs to be liberated from the feminine. We might associate the tinted pink with little girls and then the hot pinks with sex and especially sex for sale. Like we need to question that. I want to, to use pink at will without always being again, reduced to the feminine. Yet I acknowledge that that is what a viewer might see first instinct is the feminine and so now I'm purposely using the aesthetic um, now that I understand its roots in my own life and I wield it like a like a sword I dare you to love pink you know I even have pink hair most of the time it's just a color that I've grown to love again it goes back to those pink surrounded islands and plastic too is showing up in the work quite a bit not just the pink but the material that um, Christo and Jean-Claude chose. And yeah, I'm excited to, to, to figure out some of the underpinnings of my own choices that were just kind of sort of coming out of me naturally. Yeah. I mean, Christo and Jean-Claude were an absolutely iconic art artist duo. And I guess this is good timing as we're, you know, recording this in October, 2021. And the Paris installation on the Lac yes. de Triomphe. 
Yes. Has been absolutely magnificent. And that was basically the last project. I think that, I mean, Christo, because Jean-Claude passed a couple of years prior, that's ever really going to take place. And I remember the London Mastaba really affected me because that was the first installation that I had ever seen of theirs. And it was one of the first exhibitions that I ever worked on because I worked uh, at a small gallery at the time I was interning and they had a small retrospective with his preparatory works. So he would obviously draw all of this on paper and he would include maybe some fabric samples and things like that. So the artist duo, but also Christo later on, works with paper and Mm -hmm. then does these large land art installations. And you mentioned earlier on that you came to grad school with one canvas and two tubes of paint. What styles and mediums do you gravitate towards now? And how do you conceptualize the themes that we've been speaking about, like physically? Sure. So I'm gravitating towards performance in relation to objects and space. And I think in some ways it mirrors domestic space, church rituals, and these immersive experiences such as when we're standing in the middle of or on a bridge viewing, you know, the duo Christo and Jean-Claude's work. When I think about the pink plastic wrapped, these were were artificial islands formed from dredged material, and they were ultimately used as uh, like covert dumping grounds for consumer waste. And so the artists had to like clean that up you know, before they installed. And so what they were doing is they were combining local culture, local cultural concerns with conceptual ideas and formal concerns. And then they create this temporal art experience using man-made materials, the populace, the topographical space. And then these were like the primary elements. And I feel like I'm working in the same way and never really knew that's what I was doing. I I am a voracious reader. I I think about how these artists work where there was a lot of research, right? And like all of the ephemera is like now for the taking, people can sort of own a piece of this, this ephemeral temporal work. I'm, I'm constant, I'm an, I feel like I'm an artistic researcher of sorts myself, because when I have a question, of course, I have to go read all the things. And sometimes I just go into the studio and start working with material. And it's this back and forth and synthesis that, that um, produces work. There's a lot of daydreaming involved when I'm walking or riding public transportation or during meditation sessions. And then my actual dreams, of course, usually right before waking, an idea or an image will crystallize and then I'll just have to get up and pursue it. So these are some of the ways that I work and the medium and and how the concept and form all comes together. And when did you know that you wanted to do this? When did you know that you wanted to pursue art, but also art in the way that you're pursuing it now? Was there a defining moment or was it a gradual thing or was it from the very beginning you knew? I mean, it was planted in my head when I was so, so young by teachers that I was an artist. I was tested for art programs and my parents were resistant to sort of, you know, let me go off to another school maybe and and leave my home school. Um, But I, I, I want to answer this in a very raw way. If I answer this very truthfully, like, like I knew, is when my parents had such a strong negative reaction to my work while I was quietly pursuing my undergraduate degree in art as an adult. Uh, here I was with a family trying to break away from the church, and my parents thought what I was doing was disgusting. 
I think my mother actually used those words. And that told me I was on the right track and just to keep going. I mean, when anyone has such a visceral reaction to a humanistic pursuit, like run in the other direction, there, there's something they're hiding. I started receiving awards and a lot of positive feedback in my school and beyond. I honestly didn't understand the importance of what I was doing, but others did. And that was really helpful to get that early feedback. So I, I do know now that the work is, is not just for me. I'm making it, but it's shared. And then when I share it, I'm connecting with others. I thought I'd be so lonely when I left this religious group. And I was for a while. I felt all alone. But through art, I've connected with so many people. Thank you for sharing that with me and also being vulnerable with me and talking to me about that. Because it, I'm sure that that is something that probably wasn't easy at the time. And I'm happy, I guess, to say that you are sitting here today talking about your artistic practice because you decided to go forward with that. And I think that that's absolutely marvelous. So you spoke about your mother briefly now, but has there been anyone else who has influenced you throughout your life and your career, be it people you know personally or possibly other role models? I know that Frances, your grandmother, is an important topic in your work, which is why yes. you also made it the name of your series, Frances Wasn't a Saint, two works of which Art Pow Her has in their collection on Artsy. And at the moment, I know that you're researching more about your grandmother in New York. So I'm curious to see how this search affects your practice and what work will result from it. I know that was a long question, but For can sure. you give uh, us a little bit of insight into that? Sure. I, I could give a lot of role models, but at the moment I do want to focus on my grandmother. I came here a little later than I intended because of the pandemic, but I'm here now in Brooklyn, New York, and it's uncanny. I was looking for where my mom is from in Brooklyn and where my grandmother, her mother lived and the grandfather that we didn't really, or her father, you know, my mom's father that we didn't know much about. And I landed by happenstance in a neighborhood that is a 15 minute walk to the house that they lived in. And I was able to find them. <laughs> I want to say that Francis is guiding me, you know, that, I mean, how else can it be? At the same time, my grandfather was an infamous character, and I, I don't want to divulge all the details today, but he um, is well known. And so it was easy to find him because I had a name because there were so many like newspaper articles and magazine articles about him. What I found so interesting is that Frances, my grandmother, and her two children, my mom and her brother, were erased from the story. It's like they don't exist. And... So now I'm really thinking, okay, so Francis, you revealed yourself to me in grad school through this performative ritual that I was engaging in looking for a role, a female role model in the family. And this is how Francis appeared to me. And I, I sort of set up the conditions, thinking a lot about her at the time. Who was she? Why did she make the choices she made? Why did she leave New York and go to Miami? Why was she reclusive in many ways and never never partnered again and just kind of lived out her life in um, this very, very simple, quiet way. And in the end, she's the loud voice in the room every time I work. It's like a tap on the shoulder. Keep going. You know about me now. <laughs> you see where I lived. You see who I was married to. You understand a little bit more about your heritage. Keep digging. Because when we know some things about our history, it can inform us moving forward. There, there's a story, right? We all have a story. 
and I wanted to know. So Francis really is my role model. I find it so shocking to hear that you were able to research your grandfather so much and that your grandmother was, as you said, erased from the narrative and that it's a little bit difficult to find more information on her, whereas you can find a lot of things about your grandfather. You know, what's really sad is the only document I could find for her was her signature on his death certificate. I mean, think about that. Jesus. And then, and then there was a death certificate for her that I found in Florida. So that's profound, right? So, uh, so much to unpack. And wow, I've been called to really research the life cycle and the death phase of our life cycles and, and do, you know, work around the soul and soul iteration. It's all leading somewhere in, in the work. Were your grandparents also quite religious? Was that something that your parents were raised with and that's why your mother and I'm guessing your father as well were, were so religious and is that something that that moved down or was that something that started with your parents? So interestingly my mother was rejecting the Catholic church. She went to a, a Catholic school here in Brooklyn. The, the bits and pieces I did get growing up is they were very poor and it makes sense now a widow right? With two children Mm -hmm. in Prospect Heights, right around the corner from where I live. And that's why she left. Francis left was to try and make a better life for her children. But I always heard the stories of my mom sort of being abused by the nuns in Catholic school and, you know, rejecting that. And then here she is a 15 year old girl who hooks up with my father and they find themselves with child And his mother at the time was drawn into this religious group. So my other grandmother, and here she sees this teenage couple struggling to like function and sent the church people to them to convert them and say, okay, this is how you can order your life and make things better. And of course um, I did witness and hear that Francis was completely opposed to my mom joining that group and fought it tooth and nail for years until she gave up. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, I think that's what caused the split and why I don't know a lot about Francis is because Francis was this badass, chain smoking, independent person, <laughs> yes. you know, living a couple miles up, you know, the street in Miami. And here we were this, like becoming this perfect little family, you know, going to church. Yeah. Quote unquote, perfect. When I- right. Oof. Exactly. We could unpack that. I'll I'll let the audience unpack that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for sharing that with me. But on to my next question. Have there been things that you have struggled with throughout your career? And if so, what were they and how did you overcome them? For sure, I struggled with self-doubt all along the way and still do. I think artists are feeling more free to talk about that with each other that this is just, this is a really hard thing to decide you're going to do with your life. It's so vulnerable. And we're always just looking for that, that moment of of recognition or that someone says, yes, I see it. And then they want to connect with us through the work. So just really believing in the work and also never thinking there's enough, right? Like there's not enough resources, primarily, you know, what am I contributing, you know, to the capitalist model, (laughs) And you can't get caught up in that. And so I I guess I struggle with that most, staying true to the work and knowing that everything will be okay. It has to be, right? Because I'm not going to stop making art because it's really what keeps me alive. It's, It's my 
yeah, now I'm getting emotional. Art is, it saved my life, you know? Oh, don't you get emotional because then I'm going <laughs> to start crying as well. You started it. Because you started just, it. But it, it is, it's just so true because I, like, I, I relate and I don't make art, but if I would have to work in a job where I couldn't interact with art and do this, for example, this, this gives me life. This makes me happy. If I wasn't doing this, I don't know what I would be doing. I feel like this gives me purpose. I feel like it is my purpose. It's encouraging culture, encouraging society. And I really do believe that engaging with art in any way, either working in it or being an artist or going to see art or reading about art or anything like that, you're engaging with humans. And I think that it encourages empathy. It improves quality of life. It improves mental health. It improves physical health. It does. It improves our society. It creates awareness for other cultures and other people and the way that they live and express their emotions. And absolutely. I think that these things are so important and that's why it's you know, seeing you get emotional about how important (laughs) art is for you and me getting emotional because it's important to me and just to anyone listening, art is important. Engage with it, please. I mean, I guess absolutely. (laughs) People engaging with this podcast, engage with art. Absolutely. When I, when I was introduced to you, I felt it immediately. I'm like, yes, yes, of course I want to do this podcast because I, I recognize when someone's going to bring out the best in you because they're that passionate. And that is what you're doing. I think what we're doing, um, I don't know if you would call it this, but I call it a love letter, not only to ourselves, you know, to little April, but to the world. Yeah. And I remember this was when I was a teenager and I was reading something and it was like a Tumblr post. Yeah. I don't know what year it was, but it was back when Tumblr was a big thing. And it was just this post and someone had written that if the only person that you ever help in your life is yourself, then that's okay. And I I kept having to remind myself of that to kind of let go of what I thought might be helping other people or might be doing what other people might want me to do, not just helping other people, but ascribing to their beliefs of what a successful person might look like. And in that way it allowed me to let go and then actually find what I really love and what I'm passionate about. And in turn, through my dedication, which I'm I think I can speak for myself and say that I am really dedicated to what I do. And so through that, I think that it automatically means that I end up helping people or affecting people or making a positive change, which is ultimately the only thing that I can wish for my career, you know? I do know. I do know. That was a big one. Going into grad school at the time, there was so much unrest, right? Social unrest. And I'm living in the South at the time. And I just remember turning to one of my professors and saying, what am I doing here? You know, I, I, I have, you know, three young adult children. I need to be on the other side, actually doing something. And it was one of those moments again, calm down, right? You're doing it. You just, it, that the world's waiting for you. It doesn't always have to look like how you think it should look, which is at the time street activism or, you know, yeah, exactly. But because you've, you've mentioned grad school a couple of times now, mm-hmm. I do want to dive into the question of how did you learn your craft, your practice? Okay. So do you, did you have a formal education, which because you've mentioned grad school, yes, you have, but can you tell me a little bit more about your education and how you feel that this has maybe affected your practice in certain ways? For sure. I, I've worked, I didn't know that I was even making art at the time. 
um, we'll just call it what the art world likes to call self-taught or untaught. I, I was I was just starting to process sort of covertly writing and making art and dipping into the local community college and saying, oh, let me go explore color and let me go explore drawing. And it all came so <clears throat> naturally, but I didn't obviously feel I had permission because the group really frowns upon higher, what they call higher education, because it's a distraction from the ministry and the end of the world's coming. So why would you waste your time doing that? So having coming into my undergrad program as an adult with already like a, a way of working was interesting because now I had to kind of submit to an institution saying like, this is the way we do it. And I'm so glad I did that. I needed the form. I needed the structure. I need to contain like the wild child in me for a moment and be like, you can't be flailing all over the place. <laughs> took me a long time to finish and admit that I was even in university at the time to people that would not have liked that. And what that did was it allowed me to find my voice. And I have to hand it to the painting and drawing professors I had because they didn't so much emphasize perfecting a craft. They valued the voice and the work. And they thought, you know, I had some natural talent. So, you know, just let her go in the corner and do what she's going to do. Because I was never actually painting and drawing. <laughs> I was always doing something else. In fact, my, my work for your, what do you call it in undergrad? Your senior show, your senior exhibition? Um, I think it's called a graduate show. Yeah, it was just collage. Just, I'm saying just. It was magnificent collage on cigar boxes hung in a wall installation. So it, it's my own form of drawing and painting, you might say. And in the boxes held these little sculptures and there was just this whole thing going on. So the, right there, right? I was mixing media. And um, going then later to grad school, it really helped give me time and space away from the domestic concerns. It was the first time I was able to go to school without thinking about everybody else. I could just deep dive into the work. And that has really just allowed my practice to flourish. I was in the time-based art program at my university and that program celebrates the use of video and performance and digital applications. And it just gave me more tools. It allowed me to perfect some of the craft because I had moved beyond the canvas at that point, for sure. So it was a process for you to also explore different mediums and different, different ways of making, as well as your conceptual practice too. And going off of my previous question, when it comes to developing your career and developing your practice, I understand that you have an upcoming show at Untitled Miami. Would you mind telling me more about that? Because I would love to hear about what you've created for it. If you've specifically created something for that, or if you're taking already existing works, but also for any artists that are listening, would you mind telling me a little bit about how this opportunity came about and how you have taken advantage of it to the fullest? Sure. So I'm in a group show, three women at Untitled Art Fair in Miami, and the Monica King Projects, who I've been working with since 2019, invited me and, and expressed that she thought it would be a, a great sort of homecoming for me to go full circle back to Miami with the Francis work. So to answer your question, I'm not creating new work. We're just bringing more of the Francis work. And this, I'm glad you asked this question because I think sometimes artists feel pressure to constantly make something new. But sometimes we move ahead too fast. The work that we 
for, for me personally, like the Francis series is not something that I'm just like, okay, I'm done, one and done, moving on, what's next? That work still needs to be seen and hasn't been seen. And it certainly hasn't been seen in Miami. And what an homage, right, to Francis to, to bring that work. I'm also bringing the neon, love you, a sign altar. Yeah, so I was invited and we applied and I did some writing for the application and we got in. Yay. I love that. I did a previous episode uh, on all about art and it was about um, like experiencing an art fair because I participated in my first one at the beginning of September where I curated and it was a similar experience to, okay, you have to apply and you have to write and you have to do these things. And um, I feel like it was such a joy, but at the end of it, I was, I was so tired. Sure. Oh, wow. I don't know if I've ever been that tired after, I mean, I felt so, I remember sitting in the car because I stayed at the artist's house and we were in her car and we were driving to the very last day to go and take all the artworks with us and get the transport ready for the big artwork and whatever. And I was sitting in the car and the windows were down and I was just smiling, but my eyes were half closed yes. because I was like, I could fall asleep, but I'm so happy. <laughs> Yes. I mean, think about it. You, when you're doing, when you're bringing your work anywhere, cur the curator, the artist, when you're, when you're working together, you're basically doing like a pop-up installation overnight, right? And it's just this temporary thing. And so much heart and soul goes into presenting artists' work. I definitely want to give a shout out to those that do that. Um, yourself, Anna, um, Monica King, uh, Jenny Goldman, like we, we can't do it without you. Thank you for saying that because, <laughs> you know, I, I remember one time I was, I was asked by an artist, they were like, well, what do you really do? And I was oh like, goodness. well, I can do a lot. I promise. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, but I, you know, I love working together with contemporary artists. I think that that's kind of my biggest passion is to, to curate contemporary art shows. And so going off of what we were just talking about when it comes to, to working with different people. What would you say are the important things to concentrate on when you are aspiring to collaborate with a gallery or maybe an art professional? And how did the collaboration with Art Powher come to exist, for example? So I, I'll, I'll speak first to um, Anna at Art Powher. I met Anna at an art fair, Spring Break Art Fair in New York City in, okay, so that was beginning of the pandemic 2020, Anna came through and was in this immersive installation and, and just kind of standing there and introduced herself. And uh, I, I saw her having a moment and I had a moment watching her have a moment. It was the only day I was actually at the art fair after the install. So yeah, that was, that was. How uh, lucky. <laughs> mm -hmm, for sure. And yeah. Anna ever since has just been so encouraging, just kind of off, you know, on, on the side saying, I really believe in you and the work that you're doing. And it was important for me to stay connected with Anna because that was a real reaction. Like that was an authentic interaction. That was humans connecting art as the channel once again. And uh, so then Anna reached out to me, of course the world falls apart and we all had some personal stuff going on in our lives. And she reached out to me and said, Hey, I'm doing this virtual show kind of coming back to life with, with, you know, coming out of these recent events, would you like to participate? And I said, absolutely. Because I really also wanted to support women who were um, making space for, for artists who are coming from that sort of, I don't know, 
perspective, you know, of what it means to be a female in the art world. Um, and in, in collaborating, I say the important things to concentrate on are really showing up as an artist, knowing what you need and expressing that clearly and communicating that clearly. Sometimes we're just so like excited that somebody wants to work with us and then we don't look out for ourselves. So look out for yourself as an artist, but by being clear and communicating, that allows those who are collaborating with you and wanting to help, to help you in the right ways. You know, I believe everyone has good intentions at the end of the day, but it comes down to communication and just mutual respect and a level of professionalism goes a long, long way. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think communication is so key. And as you know, from the other side, as someone who collaborates with artists, I, I think I can, I can say this with confidence as well is that I really make an effort to always make sure that I, that I communicate to the artist of what I think would be good or what I think uh, would be important or how I would like to structure the exhibition and the narrative and it's a conversation with the artist. When you collaborate, when you curate a contemporary art exhibition, you're collaborating with the artist. So it's not just artists collaborating with artists or gallerists with artists. It's it's this full creative conversation that you have Absolutely. where you bring in these different perspectives that can then create something that really communicates the concept and, and connects with people. And sometimes- and that's, yeah. mm -hmm. No, go, go, go ahead, ahead. please. <laughs> it's, it's so important what you're saying and artists need to hear that. I know I said early on when working with Monica and Jenny in particular, because everything was a collaboration at that point. It's like, sometimes there's like a, a kind of an apology. Well, this is what we think you know, we should do. And I'm like, no, like I see this as a collaboration. Like you see things that I can't see. And so having that open channel of back and forth communication and knowing that um, it is, in my opinion, what curators do is a creative process in and of itself, a, a form of working at, as artists themselves, if you want to call it that, an artistic pursuit. So we're just realizing there's a lot of creativity in, um, that curators bring to the table in that how they see the vision Yeah, definitely. for that particular space. Yeah, definitely. I think that it's it's necessary as well. And I really enjoy, like, it's always really fun because it's, you know, you, you think about the practical things like applications and fund, like funding applications or whatnot and logistics and things, but it's also how you interact with people, how you communicate the art to, to people. And that's the really, that's where the passion comes in, I think. And I remember this was at the art fair when I was giving a, a curator's tour. I mean, we, we spoke to people, everyone who came into the room, we spoke to people, which is why we ended up losing our voices by the end of the day. <laughs> but when I, I just remember speaking to someone about one of the artworks and I got goosebumps all over because I was just, it was one of the first times that I was speaking about it to someone who wasn't involved in the project and I just felt so invested and so I got creative with it I, I was allowed to get creative with it because the artist allowed the, both of the artists because there were two of them that we worked with they allowed myself and the other curator to really get involved with that process and it just made me feel so deeply and it made me so attached and it was such a beautiful thing I really yeah. Otherwise, that. you're 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 a 
you know, for, I, I think a lot about display, the blurring the lines between production and display. But when you think about a store, and I use store as a symbol in my work as well, like curators aren't like storekeepers, like give me the objects and let me put them on the shelf and done, right? It's not like that. There's so much nuance and, and so much that can be read in between the lines. And a curator can sometimes bring that out. Absolutely. So you mentioned um, artistic production, and mm -hmm. that brings me to my next question of consumption. Sure. What is your view on consumption, be it, for example, media consumption or art consumption in the society that we live in today? I, I hope this answers it. Going back to, I've had to kind of answer the question for myself, like why plastic shows up in my work so much. No, always an element of plastic. And for me, it's, it's like plastics become the foundation for much of consumer trade consumer goods. And it, it's almost become an iconic symbol of the times in and of itself as, like, as a material. We've converted the earth's energy into this lightweight usable material for the masses. And I think the combining of this sort of cheap material with fine art and, and earth materials is interesting and meaningful. And you can't help but think about consumers and consumption when you think about plastic and recycling and what we're doing, right? So, but there's also this other definition of plastic, which I'm calling plastic lives, meaning that we're all currently questioning what is real and what is fake, you know, thinking about AI and NFTs and social media influencers and their curated aesthetic. Um, what is put on? What are we wrapping ourselves in back to the islands? like? What are we wrapping ourselves in, packaging ourselves and being packaged as product and brand? So it's showing up in the work. It may be subtle. I don't know. Uh, for me, I just feel like it's, it is coming from like living in Miami in the corner store and doing performance work in Mexico where you would go and for, you know, just for some change in your pocket, go buy cheap things to then commune in ritual with your community there was nothing fancy about it right you know some religious candles and some candy being sold side by side in the case of the store across the street from where i lived animals were being sold for you know religious sacrifice so this idea of consuming and then bringing the things together to then create ritual and opportunities for communing is showing up in the work and i think that is what you know church does and in a way that's kind of what art does right but in more meaningful and thoughtful ways this is what we do as humans. We gather things, we acquire things, ideas, objects, we commune with them, and then hopefully it helps us grow and evolve into a better understanding of how to be good citizens of the world. I don't know if that answered, but that was a lot. <laughs> it more than answered my question. Okay. Thank you. It was an absolutely wonderful and very, very interesting answer. And I'm, I'm really glad to hear your thoughts on it because I think it's really important. And I also think like bringing it into a bit of a, also just like the consumerist perspective and capitalist and things, because I often think about all of these things, like think about collecting and, and acquiring things and how humans just tend to, to gravitate towards doing that. And sometimes sure. I've had to ask myself why, because I think that for me, it's definitely come through again. Of course, it's reflected in art because I collect art. And when something is meaningful to me, then I want to have it in my space. Absolutely. And so I was, I've 
also been thinking about how ethical is that to to claim it and ownership and things like that. So that's just something that popped into my head also, you know, through this discussion and thinking about how that's something that human beings tend to do in in whatever form it's in, be it through like right now with with the climate crisis and fast fashion, or as you said before, with animals and mm-hmm. and religious sacrifice. Absolutely. Right. And, or or the human, the ultimate sacrifice, like the, the, the iconic image of the human being willing to sacrifice themselves up in the name of divinity. Like that's a fascinating theme that keeps showing up in my work too. Like whose bodies do we, do we consume at the end of the day and, and what's bought and sold? It all goes back to these, these grand narrative ideologies, as far as collecting things, wherever I go, I, I have certain objects in this space that just bring me so much comfort. And I, am starting to think about and write about the energy within objects and objects as a channel for communing with what might be beyond us that we can't see, like something to touch, something to put our eyes upon that connects us with the unseen. And that's Mm -hmm. like, because you just said something to touch. And when we think about Mm -hmm. art and interaction and human interaction and emotions, how art has become this oh, what's the word for it? When it's so, it's put on a pedestal. It's something that's so, Absolutely. you can't touch it. It's this precious, sacred. Sacred. I think, yeah, I'm going in the, in the direction of sacred. In the and sacred, think- because so like you don't go up and touch certain things, right? In a yeah. gallery or in a church. And I, and I go back and forth with the, the white cube space in the cathedral yes. being in conversation. Yes, um, exactly. You're talking to a cure. like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, my whole thesis <laughs> exhibition was designed around a wonky cathedral and yeah. So what, what can, what can or cannot be touched? What is considered precious and sacred? And then, yeah, a lot of those things that we, we determine as precious and sacred end up in many ways being violated by society. Like the, the, the themes in my work are so, someone described it one day is like, your work is thick. <laughs> I was like, is that a bad thing? No, no, no. It's all there, but I've lived a life, right? And I've come out of a really interesting situation that that allows all those layers to be there. But I do think art is sacred in some ways and precious. And I, I worked in book arts a lot. And um, that was where my conceptual development really kind of grew, form and concept but we would hand out white gloves to handle the books. Cause like, okay, we're going to let you touch this art, but not really like your skin can't touch it. We could do another podcast yeah. just on that. On just, yeah. Like what, what, like sacred touching. art, what can and cannot be touched. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How do we interact with things and consume? Yes. Because it all ties together, doesn't it? Yes, it does. So as I mentioned earlier, it is October, 2021. And mm-hmm. The pandemic has been going on for a while now. So how do you think that this has affected you and your art and your research? This is a very simple answer. Uh, The pandemic has made me more determined than ever to go 100% in the art practice because you do not know that you have tomorrow. And it may sound sort of cliche, but like, really, I've been thinking a lot about our death denying culture in this country where I live, the pandemic has showed us ourselves really. So all the things that I had been thinking about before the pandemic just became bigger and more important. Just such a regard for life, the preciousness and the sanctity of the lives that we lost, how it was handled, 
people dying alone, all of those things are coming up for me. And yeah, just continuing with, with the same questions, but maybe with a more heightened sense of the preciousness of, of what we have today. Yeah. I think that that's a very beautiful way of putting it, saying with a heightened sense of preciousness or a heightened sense of, of self, for example. I think that that's something that resonates with myself because just having to spend so much time on your own as well and with your own thoughts really makes you reflect a lot about things, about yourself, about society, about what you agree with, what you don't. And as you say, how things were handled, how the pandemic has affected so many people's lives in so many different ways, some in much bigger ways than others, but everyone, absolutely everyone. And I think that that's something that we didn't like, at least I didn't realize at the beginning. And so having to think about a bigger picture and in the grand scheme of things and worry and be afraid because I'm not going to lie there was fear as well involved sure. but then also to think about yourself and in a in a very personal way in a very internal sense so it's kind of this balance of both that you're really taking a lot of time and emotion to think about I think and that's something that we've at least I've personally been been doing over the past year and a half Everything you said resonates. I, I would say that is absolutely what the pandemic maybe has given us or gifted us if you're able to just get out of your own way and, and use the opportunity to commune with yourself and what it is you think. Solitude can sometimes be a gift. Yeah, definitely. And I am happy to be back out in the world. <laughs> <Let me tell laughs> you. Um, being in New York, it, it's, you know, it, there's some precarious moments for sure. Um, Anywhere you live right now, the city that I left, you know, uh, experienced a tragedy. A young artist was lost to what what is being called like post-pandemic crime. You know, people are desperate and people were worried about me coming to New York, but, you know, New York is where I need to be. And I'm so happy to be a part of the rebuilding. I'm not going to be afraid. Yeah. I have Francis on my side. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you and I have talked about this a little bit briefly in, in a previous conversation that we've had, but there are statistics and there are many things, for example, as a woman in our society and why we have good reason to be afraid of things sure. or to be hesitant. And I was speaking to another friend about this because she, she lives in Seattle and Seattle's not the safest place either. Mm -hmm. And she was thinking about moving to New York and she said, well, but I'm just, I've experienced these things and I've heard about these things and I just don't think I can. And I said to her, I said, if this is what you want, if this is something that you feel strongly about, don't let this fear of this constrict you because well, in this case, we were talking about, for example, sexual harassment and things like that. Sure. And I just said, because in a way, if you do that, you're letting them have even more power. That's right. And so it's about taking that back and trying not to be afraid and trying to, to live your life. And I think that that's really important also being in London. But I have to admit, I think that speaking from just the 10 days that I was over in Seattle when I sure. was over there in September, comparing it to what I've seen in London and in uh, Austria, I think that 
the situation in the United States is really not good. It's precarious everywhere. And that's why I agree with you. Go live your life. I, I, it wouldn't matter where I am right now, honestly, in the United States of America. I, I feel vulnerable everywhere I go. So I'm glad you shared that with me because it's, and that we're talking about it. I, I do also take issue with the media and how they handle and sensationalize certain stories involving certain bodies and certain, you know, groups. I'm back at my roots here in Brooklyn because I live in a multicultural environment, just like I did in Miami growing up. And I, I just, yes, thing, there are people everywhere you go that are going to challenge you and, and you need to be hypervigilant as, as a woman, but I have just received so much love and support in my neighborhood from the locals that have been here a long, long time. We're happy you're here. I mean, I can't get down the street without, without having a conversation with somebody. What is that about? Right. We're not reporting on that. Yeah. That people are just so happy to be together again and communing, whether it be on the street corner or in the, in the local bodega, cutting up with the guy in line or, you know, having a drink at a local lounge or at the museum around the corner. I mean, it's just live your life. That is something that when we're talking about cultures and, and different ways of living, I think that that's something I absolutely love about America. Yes. Cause when I went over there, everyone is so open and ready to chat. And I've heard a lot of people since living in London, I've had a lot of people say, Oh, but it's so superficial, but it's not when the girl passes me and says, Oh my God, I love your boots. Where did you get them? And then we start up a very short conversation, but it just makes me happy. And it's that little social interaction that brightens my day. Or yes, when the Starbucks barista asks me how my day is going and I answer honestly what I'm up to today and she answers back how her day is going and we exchange a small anecdote. Great. It was very superficial. We didn't get into the fact that maybe yesterday I couldn't get out of bed because I was depressed. Like, I don't know, but that interaction with that person made me happy. Maybe because I'm, I'm an extrovert. I really enjoy social interactions, but I find it so joyous and wonderful. And I find that Americans and how open they can be is a really wonderful thing in, in interacting with one another, getting to know one another, things like that. I agree. I would say my first month here was a little bit lonely, just getting, you know, adjusted to a new place again. And I would go to the local park every day. I called it my office park um, and do my reading and take my computer. They have tables and you can just sit and a lot of people are working out in, in the open. And before you know it, the neighbor, like this, like a three block uh, radius, the neighbors know you. And they're like, oh yeah, you're the girl in the park that's from Canada. No, that's the other girl. No, I'm not from Canada, but they get to know you. They know who's in their neighborhood. And I have a list of names in my iPhone because it's so many new people that I'm afraid I'll forget. And one day I saw this guy and I was like, oh yeah, so-and-so. And he's like, you remembered my name? I said, well, I cheated. I put it in my phone because I'm meeting so many friendly people. Well, can't be mad at that, can you? No, that you is can't. genuine. It is. I don't know how you call it. That's not superficial. That is like how humans connect. If we, if we get out of our own way again, yeah, get out of our own way. Exactly. Exactly. So that previous question was my penultimate question. And this one is my final one. If you could give emerging artists one piece of advice, what would it be? It would be 
to let people help you. I always felt that I had to do everything myself. I don't know if it was some kind of complex around, you know, being a woman and proving something in the, I don't know where it comes from, but I, I just always felt like I had to do everything myself, no matter where it comes from. That wasn't good. Like we're not, artists are like these solo creatures working in the studio, doing the thing day in and day out. It's not supposed to just be you like get out of the studio and let people help you ask for help. Of course, concentrate on the work, but be ready when opportunity arises. It is around you, but you have to have that mindset of, I think now more than ever collaborating yeah, and being in conversation in the arts. And well, that that's... requires letting people help you. Exactly. Exactly. And it's like that phenomenon of when you are thinking about buying a yellow polo. I don't, that's quite random, but yes, a yellow polo. <laughs> a yellow actually, polo. Yeah. Which is not that common of a car. And then all of a sudden you're driving on the street and all you see are yellow polos all the time. And that's not because there are more yellow polos. It's because you're thinking about it and you're looking for it. And I always say this about opportunities and, and jobs and collaborations is that be open to that, look for these positive things. And I don't want to say manifest them, mm -hmm. but to a certain extent, when you keep them in your mind, you're going to spot them easier. You're going to be more ready to take them when they arise, these opportunities. So that's why it's important to keep that mindset as well as you can, which isn't always possible. Like I'm not gonna, you know, I, I need to practice what I preach, but also be honest about what I practice. Sure. <laughs> is that, sure. you know, I have days where, you know, I have to keep telling myself, Hey, comparison is the thief of joy. Like, let's not do that because everyone has space mm -hmm. and try to be positive about my career and my future prospects and things like that. But I think that being open to collaborating and letting people help you, at least speaking from, from a young person in the arts, I think is also quite a vulnerable thing. So when For you sure. said that, I was like, Oh, actually <laughs> I could take that advice as well. Definitely. For sure. I, I just, I just think about, it's so important to pace ourselves really, or life will pass you by, you know, you'll wake up one day, you know, lift your head from the work and you're looking and there's nobody around because you've just been in your an island unto yourself, but in pacing yourself, you provide a space, you, you give yourself grace, right? Around the work that you're doing. And that's again, another opportunity to commune when you let people help with you. I'm constantly getting, you know, the, the finger waving along the way because I couldn't get out of my own way. And it was again, a professor in grad school or visiting artists an artist in residence, uh, who just looked at me one night over dinner and she just like, April, just, just let them help you. <laughs> she was like, you're working too hard. It, you don't have to do it all yourself. It, it was someone on the outside showing me myself. Like I had something to prove. Yeah. I definitely think that resonates having something to prove mm -hmm. that concludes our conversation. So April, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, for sitting down with me, for having this really open and emotional conversation with me. I feel like this episode is just has been absolutely magnificent to record with you. So thank you so much. Thank you. And be well in London. Thank you. And that is it for today on All About Art. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please leave me a rating or a review as it helps more people discover the show. Also, feel free to share with your friends or if you share on social media, tag me and get in touch. Thank you so much for listening.